0: I
1: don't think we met before, but I'm the referee on this field.
0: Leinster could have me five mil a year I wouldn't go. <laughs> it is
2: Robbie Robbie weekly.
0: the first pass.
2: How long is a piece of string? If a tree falls in a forest and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? If Jesus could walk on water, could he swim on land? And how was Tygburn technically onside while seemingly occupying a different air coat to Rory Scannell for that crossfield kick on Saturday? You're very welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here and joining us to answer at least one of life's great conundrums are Murray Kinsler of the 42. Murray, how are you? I'm good, Gav. Good. And Bernard Jackman. How are you, sir? Excellent, thank you. We're going to run through all of the provincial action from last weekend. Look ahead to the weekend coming. Naturally enough, talk about the Irish men's squad, talk about the IRFU's review into the changing ground debacle at Donnybrook, which came out yesterday. We record on a Thursday. Uh, probably a few more things as well. We My chat about England squad, some big calls by Eddie Jones. But I suppose, Murray, the big news of the week was um, dropped into our inboxes on Slack by our colleague Carlo Shocknessy during the week uh, when it was established that we are the what, 15th ranked sports podcast in El Salvador. We couldn't get to the bottom of it, so it's time to ask, Bernard Jackman, are there a, a clan of Jackmans down Soyapango way that we don't know about?
0: Not that I know, but if they're well off, I might be making contact for, for the old Will. It's uh, no, good to hear we're, we're
2: branching out. Yeah, Bahrain as well, Cayman Islands We're growing the game, now, this is what we set it to do It's quite a beautiful thing
1: The Roadshow series is going to launch uh, Hopefully in a few months time We're going to all these destinations that Carl flagged Yeah, Cayman Islands, um, South Africa was up there as well So we're going to have a nice little tour at some stage 100% very uh,
2: kick us off there with the review From the review Into the uh, train to ground situation People will be familiar with the story Obviously Connacht uh, being forced to sort of get, well, changed for uh, their Interpro game with Leinster, seemingly in the bowels of hell. Obviously, there was a lot of discourse and discord afterwards. Apologies were issued. And then yesterday, as I say, the IRFU published the findings of their investigation. And um, I suppose just to give people a few uh, bullet points here. I don't know, shit, I've lost it. Uh, sorry, I had it open. Do you want to talk us through it? Actually, Murray, if that's all right.
1: Yeah, I mean, kind of key issues identified um, were the, I mean, the headline one here is really an ambiguity as to the responsibility for the organisation of the final weekend of the fixtures for the series, which is an incredible thing to identify, really, that no one really knew who was in charge of organising the last weekend of an Interpro series. It's absolutely baffling that that was the case. Um, and that caused obvious confusion around the operational and logistical elements, as, as the RFU review puts it, for event planning. Um, and they've kind of come up with a few recommendations, basically publishing a set of guidelines that ensure a minimum standard for this kind of stuff going forward, uh, extra training and support for the staff and facility management people who will be there on the days and then a liaison officer for each of the provincial squads to to kind of filter through so that they can flag issues um, as they come up, which all is really common sense. But, I mean, you know, Philip Brown came out and said the RFU, everyone was appalled by the, the conditions and, again, resolved that this is not going to happen. But it's just crazy that there was ambiguity over who who was... Organizing the the final fixtures of an interpro series that would not happen in men's rugby and it's, again it's just flagging that this has not been good enough for for any rugby really R- women's rugby men's rugby it's it's just crazy that that was the situation um and listen there's the resolve there that's not going to happen again yeah we we got to see the proof being in the pudding and um, going forward this was always going to be what we expected from the review but. Um what happens again, actions are, are going to speak a lot louder than these words.
2: Yeah, strategically released about, what, two hours before the men's yeah. squad was named yesterday. Decent PR job there. I, on the one hand, Bernard, the mea culpa, I'm sure, will be partly appreciated and it was necessary. On the other hand, um, reading through some of the bullet points that Murray listed off there that I couldn't find a moment ago, it's actually just astonishing that this happened and... I don't know, maybe they feel as though by pointing these things out it's like, look um, we acknowledge there was wrongdoing and so on or, or complete neglect really but like, I actually don't even think this helps the IRFU in a sense because it's so bad uh, that it's kind of staggering to even imagine how it happened in the first place
0: Yeah uh, it uh, also took a long time to to work out like what happened i mean surely in 24 hours you could you could work it out so it'd be like me letting my dog off the lead on the beach chases a, another dog i say i'm going to do a review and four weeks later i come back and say i should have it on the lead like that's how obvious it is um and no but like seriously like you, <laughs> you there's only three or four people involved in running that so you get them into a room and you know to take five or six whatever it's four or five weeks to, to come up with that which is pretty obvious it's not look at it, it's I think it's poor. They released it just before the men's. Um. Uh, even if there was any doubt around, you know, the importance of it, and and you don't want to be seen to cover it up, don't release it around that time. You know, you know, you waited for four and a half weeks or whatever you waited for. Just wait until there's a there's a little gap. So, it it doesn't look like it's been buried. Um. It's great that they have put their hands up. It's great to putting measures in place, but you know i i don't see how it took that long to work it out to be honest i mean there's a couple of people involved in it um you know it's just they say speed kills but i mean this is this is just um acting slowly for for the sake of it to look like you're actually going through a massive review and you know the reality is uh, i can't see how it could take longer 24 hours to figure out what happened to be honest Mm,
2: yeah i'm sure it didn't really um there are potentially positive updates, Murray, on the women's side of things as well, or a uh, more palpable change of foot in the news that Rory O'Connor uh, reported last night. Greg McWilliams is set to replace Adam Griggs at the end of the November International. So Griggs will remain in charge for two more games, and then Greg McWilliams takes the reins. I think for four years, Rory was reporting in the Irish Independent that he'll have a broader remit over the women's game, aligning the sevens programme with the 15s in a sense and uh, working day by day as well, I think, with the sevens is what Rory was saying. And we know from uh, Greg McWilliams' past that he has obviously strong links to the women's game. He was assistant coach in that 2013 Grand Slam campaign, uh, involved in the 2014 World Cup and then uh, has since worked in the US, Came back to Dublin recently as a high performance consultant for World Rugby. What do you make of that appointment? Which I should stress hasn't been confirmed yet. I don't think, but looks like it's very much on the cards.
1: Yeah, it certainly does. Um, and if it's confirmed, I think it'll be a really popular and positive appointment. As you say, there's a great history there. It within uh, women's rugby in, in Ireland with Greg McWilliams um, and was highly regarded and highly rated by that playing group. He worked alongside Philip uh, Goose Doyle. Um, to, to really drive that team forward and his his work behind the scenes with skills and their attack and, and, and things like that were, were really well received as well as being very good um kind of with the personal side and the relationship side of the thing which is massive in, in coaching and obviously has gone away and got very different experiences in the US with the Eagles most recently um worked in Yale in the, in the college game over there and with Rugby United New York as well so it is always good to see people integrated back into the system as well um and yeah that understanding of the landscape and having worked there is is important as well i think a long term project is a good thing as well because as we've discussed um quite a bit recently this needs to start from the ground right up and there's a lot of work that needs to go into to ensuring that the the next world cup cycle is going to be a successful one that includes ireland getting to the world cup so um yeah if that was confirmed i think it'd be a positive appointment and hopefully there's a bit of resource around a, a coaching team or, or around um greg mcwilliams and and a chance to get some some quality assistance in there because there's a lot of work even away from the national camps that needs to be done um, again something that's been flagged recently getting out to the provinces having that interaction with players being at ail matches um, and all that side of it is massive we should just mention the IRFU release yesterday gave us an update on those two reports that are also going on the failure to qualify for the World Cup review, which is gonna take eight to nine weeks, they say, and then the, the broader, wider review basically into the whole game and, and the structure of it, which is gonna be early twenty twenty two, they they say, for for an update on that one. Again, like those are big parts of the picture as well, and um you would hope that all of this is is a is a turning point for women's rugby.
2: Yeah, it does seem as though the uh, report into the failure to qualify for the World Cup will be published as well. I think they told RTE yesterday. Um, so we'll wait and see. I'm sure it'll make for some interesting reading. On McWilliams, Bernard, yes from you?
0: Yeah, I know him well, so I'm biased. Um, he, I think he's a good appointment, particularly because of his experience in the in the women's game. Um, and he's gone off, he's gone to the States, he's upskilled. Uh, he's very good at people. Uh I, I understand his remit will be to try and influence change in the domestic game. Um, and I, I think he's motivated and energetic. He wants the job. Um, he appreciates what an opportunity it is. And yeah, I think he'll be good. I think he'll be very good to be honest. I look, unfortunately for him, he's starting at a very low ebb, so he's going to take a while to to make change. Um, I wouldn't like to see him spend too much time with the sevens because I think, you know, um that's shown that that project hasn't been the success that we were told it would be. So I'd like him to spend more time with the 15s game, uh, but obviously keep an eye on the on the players from Sevens who have the capability to, to transfer, but not get fixated by that. But uh, look, he knows he knows what he needs to do. So um, he, as I said, he's come for the 15s women's game. That was one of his earliest uh, coaching experiences and, and was part of a successful team. And I think I think he's smart enough to actually bring back in you know some of those um some of those players you know as part of his not if he's not coaching staff but as part of his um ambassadors or or or, or drivers or influencers uh, because they had been long neglected um and pushed aside so i think that's something that i would imagine he's smart enough to do that and and just get some goodwill behind the team um which you know which will will be a starting point anyway
2: yeah that could go a long way Uh, On the men's side of things Then Murray The squad was named yesterday For The men's November Internationals So Dan Sheehan And Kieran Frawley The two uncapped players uh, Thomas Ahern And Jamie Osborne Brought in as sort of Development players Which was nice to see Uh, What were your impressions Of the squad overall I mean there's no need to list it out I'm sure people have seen it At this point
1: Yeah I mean it's a big squad 38 man So you've got plenty Of wiggle room there And and still there are Players who will be feeling very unlucky not to be involved and people riled up by certain players being omitted but you've kind of got everyone in there and you've got a a nice balance, as you say, of those younger guys in. Only two uncapped players but it's worth remembering that what, six of the squad got their first caps in July and and there's others like Casey and Baird and even James Lowe who are very new to international rugby so there is quite a a freshness to it all as well as the returning Simon Zebo, which obviously caught the eye. He wasn't in that 50-man squad in September He's had two appearances for Munster since and, and clearly done enough to, to convince Farrell to, to get him back in there. That'll be a fascinating new, I suppose, or our refreshed um, element to the squad. He obviously wants to play at fullback. He offers something different probably to the deserved incumbent and first-choice Hugo Keenan with his, I suppose, creative touches. Um, and he has great international experience as well. Like 35 caps is not to be um, kind of sniffed at. You know, that experience can count. And, and he does look... Um, of all accounts, he's he's energetic and excited to get the opportunity and and to kind of relaunch his career at the the highest level. I think the two uncapped players are worth just focusing on a little bit because they're such exciting players. They're both 23, so they haven't burst in as teenagers, but um, what we've seen most recently has been really exciting from them. Sheehan is an explosive athlete with a really good skill set. He's a really big unit, and that counts, obviously, in Test Rugby. Um and I think there's real nice skills there even around his line out throwing, which will obviously become more consistent, but it looks to have a real nice variety. Birch will probably tell us more on that, but I honestly think he can really compete with Keller even over the next ten years. They're the same age and and they'll be vying in Leinster and in Ireland. And then Frawley, who has settled in the, the twelve shirt, offers something probably a little bit different to the other centres. With his background as a ten, as a fifteen, as a, a kind of playmaker, his distribution is really nice. Even last weekend you saw it, Leinster's plays off lineouts are so much more threatening with his, his triple threat really. He can pass, kick, run, and he's a big guy as well. He can tackle, he can um carry. So I'm excited by those two coming into the mix. The the Development players you mentioned as well, that's always positive to see. I thought Nathan Doak might be in there as well, to be honest, and I think there would have been value in it, but Ahern and Osborne are really uniquely athletic. They definitely have the potential to to be presences at the highest level in, in years to come, so I think it's an exciting squad overall. Of course, you can look at bits of, and pieces where maybe guys were unlucky, but there's lots to like about it.
2: Yeah, there is. With the Zeebo thing, Bernard, it is interesting, obviously, in that he wasn't part of that 50-man list, and listen, we know what he can do, and uh, Andy Farrell certainly knows what he can do, and yet I don't know if he's had much of an opportunity to show what he can do for Munster so far this season. I know that might sound like nonsense when you consider he scored two tries on his return. Um, and to be honest, every time he's had the ball, he's had he's shown flashes of, of that sort of Zebo brilliance, that little sprinkling of magic. But he's barely had the ball is the, the point I'm trying to make. So were you surprised by his inclusion?
0: Um, I, well, I, I was surprised because I agree with you. He hasn't been given bar round one where he got some decent touches. Um, obviously, he didn't play in Scarlet's and he got starved of possession um, against, against Connacht. Um, so, yeah, it's not like he's been like out- outstandingly good, but in fairness to him a lot of that's down to how he's been used. Uh, I- I'm delighted to see him back in. I think it's uh, it's a really good sign that there's not a you know, there's nothing personal, there's not an agenda there that the- he's going to get a crack and, you know, um him and James Lowe obviously as left wingers. Zebo obviously has that flexibility that he could potentially cover um uh, cover at fullback, and our our player fullback. I mean, you know, I'd love to see him get if Munster can't get the ball to him on the left wing. I'd love to see him looking at him as a as a potential fullback option. Um, and I think you know it's and it, it goes back to that Connick game. And I you know I know, uh I know Joey got a bit of slack for the for the block down, but uh, for Carthy's try. But I, I think it's Munster still trying to figure out how to use Zeebo properly and particularly for. His kicking game, and when I was over in Rassling a couple of weeks ago, I had a good chat with Prendy about about Sebo and, and his obviously ability, and uh, you know and Prendy was 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 raving about how good his kicking game actually is, and um you know it's it's underused at the moment, and um you know like Jake White. A lot of people say, "Oh, your first position you pick in a team is your tight end." Jake White insists your first position is your left footer. Um, and if you have a second left footer, you get him in as well. So it's just something to think about. Um, I know Ireland have used James Lowe's left foot a lot on exits, and obviously he's got a long um a, a long kick. Uh, but I think Zeebo is probably more accurate to be honest. Um, so yeah, maybe he has. Maybe that's going to be. You know his his strength or or area that point of difference that's going to get him back into the team, and then if he gets into the team, we know what he can do ball in hand. But uh, I, I, yeah, I think it's a really positive, um, really positive move by by Farland as well. You know, I kind of understand now why he didn't put him into fifty. You know, he's obviously felt he's just coming back. Let him get back. Let him play. Show he's in form, and then um. You know, if he's good enough, we'll reward him. So uh, I feel a bit I was disappointed he wasn't in the fifty, but I'm I'm happier now that he's he's shown his glimpses and Farrell has shown that he's open to to using him.
2: What about your thoughts on the squad overall, Bert? What else caught your eye?
0: Yeah, I'm delighted for for Dan Sheen. Uh, obviously, he's he's carried on this season, uh, even though Callagher Callagher looks to be um, operating at a, a higher level as well. The interesting one is is Herring. So I've, I've been up at three of Ulster's games um so far so i've been watching the the warm-ups and obviously watching the games but i've actually never seen as good a thrower as as rob herring uh and like that's over 25 years uh it's actually a thing of beauty and i never studied it before you obviously watch it in game you know he can throw well but his throw is phenomenally good he's a left-hander and he just has a completely different uh technique or 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 style um, than anyone I've ever seen, and I think that's interesting. So last year I would have been maybe pushing for Kelleher to start ahead of him, and I'm not saying I'm not still pushing for Kelleher to start ahead of him, but um, I think if Ireland want to go to a set-piece game, uh, and his play around the pitch is is decent, probably not, he's not as explosive as two lads, but his throw is phenomenally good, and I could see why Paul would be batting for him um, you know, if if you're being judged on on your lineout or you're you're going after you know a team um by by kicking the touch a lot or looking to get line-out opportunities, he he is that good. So you've got a lovely balance there. You've got him um who's really solid, and then you have uh obviously the two lads who just look like you know real dynamic ball carriers uh with a better age profile than Rob. So yeah, that's the area that I obviously my old position, but I,
2: I'm very excited about. Got a couple of emails in advance of the squad announcement, Murray, or sorry, you got an email and there was a a long question as well in the members WhatsApp group. So, to read that out to begin with, this was from Tim. Question for the pod with the Irish squad out soon. Just wondering how hard is it to get back in favour once a coach has made his mind up that your face doesn't fit. Some players always seem to be ignored regardless of how well they play. Over the years, we've seen loads of players ignored or maybe called up but never play a minute, regardless of being the form player in that position. Players like McCloskey, Gilroy, Cooney, Sean Cronin, Rodock, Jack O'Donohue, Tiernan O'Halloran, Carty, plenty more too. All given a token selection in a squad but rarely used and dropped once any other option comes along. Yet we seem to love calling up the next big thing straight from the Leicester Academy with five minutes of first team experience. I think you could say the same there for maybe somebody like... Craig Casey or something similar but he adds maybe a reason we have struggled for years to gain any proper depth in key positions like 2, 9, 10, 15 Uh, it was always just pick the play sorry it was always just pick the same players all the time and then this email from Ken Murray that you received Murray uh, he said with France announcing their squad today this is a few days back naturally uh, of nine new caps and the most capped player being a 27 year old Gael Ficou with 63 caps and the oldest player being a 32-year-old Bernard LaRue, is it a sign of extreme conservatism in Ireland... Uh, that we still are relying on the usual suspects in every international window and that this knocks us back in every Rugby World Cup without fail, if not now, then when will we push the younger players to play in big games rather than a few-minute cameos against Italy, for example, in the Six Nations? We are extremely good at keeping our talent in Ireland, so why are the players who are performing well for the provinces not being rewarded with international caps and experience in the big games over their more experienced, quote-unquote, Counterparts. Um, so, similar sorts of questions and still valid in the sense that, like, okay, the squad has been named, but no 15 or 23 has been named yet. We haven't seen a minute played. Um, so, Murray, how do you respond?
1: Yeah, very interesting points made there. um As we've kind of referenced, there is quite a freshness to this squad. There's quite a bit of inexperience around it in terms of international caps, but that is the key now because, you know, Andy Farrell's probably run out of opportunities to actually. Um, trial things and and see if players are up to the pressure of Test rugby before a before a World Cup in 2023. Like it's always really interesting to see Eddie Jones. I know there are only press releases, but he, his quotes will always reference that we're building towards 2023. Whereas Ireland kind of avoid that kind of talk at at all costs, really. But I do think it is important that we see it in in match day 23s now. Um, you know Gavin Coombs continuing to build international experience. Maybe get Dan Sheehan a, a cap to to see what he's like in that kind of pressure. Andrew Porter is obviously a new loose head option now. He's obviously come in with that experience more recently in in Leinster, and and getting him minutes in in that position is really important, I think, going forward. Um, in terms of the first question with those guys who are just beneath or just outside the the mix, that's always going to be the reality of it, isn't it? Like, there's always going to be players who are just behind the the most talented players of their generation and then you've got those younger guys like Ahern and Osborne Osborne and say Coombs another one where you know you've got to expose them maybe some of the the players in that middle part are are actually more advanced or playing better rugby but you've got to get your your squad developed from the bottom up too so there's always going to be as I said players who are really unlucky. And I, I agree on some of those names. Jack Cardy obviously had a great day last weekend. Jack O'Donoghue's playing brilliant rugby. And there probably is an element of it that the coaches in place decide that this isn't our guy for this position. Like the 10 one is really interesting. This is probably the three out-halves that Farrell wanted to select all along as his crop of 10s. Johnny Sexton, his key guy, his captain, his first choice. Joey Carberry is 25 They obviously would have hoped that he hadn't had injuries like he's had and would have been a bit further on in his development, but they clearly have faith and belief that he can drive on and and become a starting 10 for for Ireland. And then Harry Byrne, who isn't playing or hasn't played as well as maybe uh, uh, Jack Carty, for example, but Farrell clearly believes that his potential is greater than Carty's, probably, without, you know putting those kind of words into Farah's mouth but that's what I'm kind of deducing from it he believes there's real potential there obviously there's been injury frustration but he's a fan of what he can do and he sees that high ceiling in his game so that's probably uh, an example of where their thinking is around this there's obviously elements of form there's elements of experience and then there's elements of potential in players and you've got to find a balance with that but I do think it's important that we see that reflected in matchday squads as well
2: What are your own thoughts on it, Bernard? A supposed conservatism and blooding young players? Because one of the issues, and we have touched upon it before, is that for Ireland, there's almost less opportunity to do that in the sense that the Six Nations has to be taken, I was going to say taken seriously. It's always going to be taken seriously, but it actually matters financially. I mean, standings actually matter financially, so particularly with the situation in which Andy Farrell finds himself now, where, yes, like you're coming off the back of some decent form, and particularly that win against England in the last Six Nations, he is still somewhat unproven in the role. He still has uh, work to do to probably stave off some of the doubters, the haters of the world. So, yes, November will be a chance to, to play some of these players, but when push comes to shove again in the spring He's not going to experiment. The Italy game is always cited as, you know, why not play um, practically an academy team or a full development team? You should win anyway. But last time around, he needed a victory. He played pretty much a full team and that's going to be the reality if you need a result against Italy, more than likely. So, I don't know, is it just a lack of opportunity to actually give lads a chance compared to countries like England where they are a little bit more concrete and perhaps can afford to... um, not sacrifice the Six Nations, but use it in a developmental sense.
0: Yeah, I think. Well, if we're, if we're comparing it with England and France, um, so Eddie, Eddie's his own man. Obviously, he's been incredibly successful. He's coming off a, he's coming off a, a, a poor season for for England, and obviously the review process that 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 led to and the recommendations from it. So he's, but he's still very focused on winning a World Cup, and and that's that was his goal going into. Um, you know, two years out from Japan was you know we're gonna we're gonna do everything in our power to win a World Cup, and obviously they fell short at the at the final. But they were managing to rack up trophies and silverware on the way. Um, it's interesting. So a lot of people talking about you know how Eddie's blood and youngsters, etc. Um, I saw a stat there that forty percent of the people he calls into camp don't get capped. Uh, so he's like, it's one thing bringing him into into camp the other thing is obviously giving them test experience so I wouldn't you know Jamie George obviously got back in due to the injury to Kevin Dickey um you know I watched Sarson's smash bat last weekend um you know Vili Bunapola is back in form I mean you know I certainly wouldn't write off George Ford is is flying for for Leicester and I know Marcus Smith is 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 the bee's knees uh at, at the moment but you know I wouldn't say that George Ford, Billy Vunafola, uh, Jamie George won't feature for England in, in the Six Nations or or at a World Cup. But probably with the player pool, Eddie can afford to leave them out. He knows what he has with those lads, um and he can make change. And likewise France, Fabien Galti has been given a mandate to uh, to win um the World Cup in France in twenty twenty three. So it's probably a little bit different uh, and obviously they've picked a, a very young squad again. It's probably a little bit different mandate than, than Andy Farrell has, where obviously because of our lack of success at World Cups, it's nearly uh, dangerous to put too much uh, pressure or, or, or focus on it because we, we can't seem to get it right. So um, he's probably more focused on the dare and now. Um, I think Harry Byrne, I would say Harry Byrne, Kieran Frawley and Dan Sheen are effectively in this squad in a higher bracket than than Tom O'Hearn and, um, uh, and Osborne. But they're really developments players. They're 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 players that obviously can do a job now. But Far believes in the f- near future, um, they can they can play a role. So that's probably why Jack Carty is not in. I think he's pro- he's obviously happy with Sexton. Obviously, who's, who's flying. Joey, obviously, there's lots of question marks around. But you know, we all believe he has the. Um, the ability to be, you know, uh, an important player for Ireland and potentially the successor to, to Johnny. So I can see, I can see why um this squad has come the way it has. But I don't think it's too stale to be honest. Um, I think it's it's pretty much par for the course for. For Farrell, um, as as he's been plotting, um, this rejuvenation, this Irish team, and uh, I wouldn't have any massive issues with it, and especially as I said, I think England and France are are setting up differently and and chasing different things. It's actually nice in a
2: way to just be planning ahead for say a Six Nations, Murray, rather than everything being centred on a World Cup. I don't know, it feels sort of freeing or something and maybe this is the way that we should do it, like maybe other countries can plan for it, I mean, as Birch outlined there, England were going for the last World Cup from two years out and still didn't win it, um, probably fell short of their own expectations in that final, albeit with a caveat that their front row was pretty much decimated. Um, Maybe for us, for Ireland, it's just like, let's just take it a year at a time and see what happens when we get to France.
1: Yeah, maybe we should commit on this podcast to heaping absolutely no pressure on just to (laughs) make sure that there's no over-focus on it. And maybe that is a better policy. South Africa did a good job of of having a short lead-in without a big, long project towards it and winning the thing. So maybe that's the the blueprint now. Uh, Eddie Jones' one is really interesting because... Like, obviously, you look at their squad and you go, wow, that's so exciting. Look at all the kind of fresh faces he has in there. But then you look at last season's fresh faces that he had in there and they're gone now. Like, Ben Earl, who I think is an excellent player, and, and Birch mentioned Sarri's there anytime. Seeing is brilliant. I thought he did really well for England. Now he's just gone out of the mix. So he's missing on his development. And some of the players that Jones calls up at times, you're, you're thinking, and like, obviously, watch a lot of rugby, but you're kind of thinking, like, does he has he really earned his, his shot in there like there's a, some of the young guys who are are just emerging and, and obviously you want to keep your eyes open for that potential at the top level but sometimes his his decision making and his selection is just a little bit wild for me and absolutely I agree I think like George Ford and Billy Vunapola are brilliant players and Mako Vunapola and to discard them would be would be lunacy really but then being out of the mix now means they miss a couple of international games with England. They miss a chance to build the cohesion we always talk hear coaches talking about as being so important. So that's a bit more of a kind of scattergun approach to things, and it's very hard for to to really see the the long term sense, I suppose, in what Eddie Jones does at times. Obviously, he's got a great history of success, and and I wouldn't doubt him in that regard. But um, yeah, the the England squad is is a bit baffling in in some sections
2: certainly is we'll talk about the provinces before we do that just want to tell you that the 42's new book behind the lines volume five is uh on shelves almost on shelves but certainly available on our shopify uh, which is our online shop uh, www.the42.shop and it has a collection of our best stories from the last 12 months it cost 12 euro we've absolutely loved putting it together we always do i think it's one of our favorite times of the year murray because finally we can convince our parents that as online only (laughs) journalists we have something vaguely resembling a real job when they can (laughs) hold some of the work in their hands but really appreciate all of the support of the 42 members obviously whose support makes the book possible and they get a 20% discount as well on the online shop so uh, head to www.the42.shop for Behind the Lines Volume 5 Murray, your most recent offering to the 42 members was a newsletter sent yesterday outlining why strictly speaking Tyg Byrne was onside <laughs> or at least
1: that seems to be the perception no no it wasn't. sorry it wasn't intended to outline that at all it was intended to outline what's been going on Um what's been going on behind the scenes because obviously this has been widely discussed publicly by us by supporters and also behind the scenes where incredibly it seems there is no actual consensus like this just sums up Roby so well there's a really high-profile incident and there's actually no agreement on whether this player is onside or offside. It's it's absolutely crazy that a sport... I mean, what a silly sport. <laughs> I know this is a rugby podcast. But basically, it's gone to World Rugby for clarification. There's been a request put in by the URC to, to clarify, like, is Byrne onside or offside here? Um, and we discussed it on, on Monday. And, and the more you look at it, the more marginal it is and the more you convince yourself either way... My feeling is that he's still offside because it just feels like offside to me. But now that I've been presented with a different viewpoint that he's potentially onside because his right foot is in line with the kick and his left foot's up off the ground, I'm kind of doubting myself. So um, basically, there's no answer, I don't think, or definitive answer yet on this. Um, and even at World Rugby level, it seems there's split opinion on it, Gav. first, <laughs> what are your thoughts?
0: It's one of the oldest techniques in the book. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Create doubt. Create doubt. Um, and that's that's what's happening. I mean, um, you know, uh, I, I, from my, my point of view, it's offside. Uh, and I won't, on, unless they, like, just, you have to trust your instinct and you have to trust what you've seen all your life in terms of how it's refereed. And if you're going to make a change like that and you're going to make an interpretation like that, um this needs to be flagged like it is for any new law interpretation so people can get their head around it so maybe i'm old school um certainly i've shared this clip with um all my different coaching groups uh, uh around the world and uh, I, we haven't had one coach come back um and say oh this marginal it, it, it's 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 uh, it's to the naked eye, and I've zoomed in on it. I've zoomed in. I have software that can zoom in at the foot. I never knew about this foot being in front. And I think if if they go down this route, it actually it's going to make the game so much harder to referee because as hard as it is to referee the body being level or behind, it's going to be a hell of a lot harder to referee was the front foot on the ground or not. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, if you freeze frame it from the TV footage, you can hardly make it out. I've zoomed in, as I said, and it's still marginal. So this is the first time I've, I've ever heard this interpretation of it. At the front foot. I was always led to believe that it was the body being level or, or behind. Um, and I just hope that they, they're not just, um, just, if, if, if there's a genuine error made, um, I think just accept it and move on. I actually think if we're, if this is going to be how it's refereed, it's going to cause chaos. Uh, and you can imagine, uh, as players, like we want to have stuff that's simple, and I don't see how judging the front foot, um, uh, that you're you can be in front of the kicker as long as you're as long as your back foot is behind our level. I don't see how that makes it simpler to be honest. Um and maybe that's just maybe I'm too simple, but uh I, I think the game is already hard to referee and to to double down on a technicality uh on this, the, the repercussions are going to make the game harder to referee, you know, long term. So uh, that's just my feeling on it, as I said. Um, you know, I haven't heard of any new interpretation going into this game. When I saw it, I was commentating on it. I straight away said, oh, that's going to be called back for Ty Byrne being offside. Um, if they had went to the TMO and the TMO had a discussed it live and went frame by frame and explained... The logic behind the decision, I could actually handle that, to be honest, to a certain extent, and it would have been educational for me, and and, and I don't portray to know every law or, or, uh, or to be a, an expert in every area of it, but at least then I would have went, okay, I can understand where the referee and the officials are coming from, and whether I agree or disagree, at least I can see the process. To make that decision without going to the TMO and, and going through it forensically, when is a try involved? And I know, look, at there's been loads of debate and, and, and people sending me direct messages and things and saying, oh, it evens out over the course of the game. You know, there was a knock-on miss, there was an offside at the rook, or there was a the tackler didn't release. Yeah, of course, like, I accept that. Uh, um, Like, as, as a former coach, like... You know, we analyse our own games with, with forensic detail, we, and we're used to the mistakes. Some people said, "Oh, Ulton Land doesn't drop the kickoff." We, we know that Ultonland on Monday had to look at that and understand that he had a mistake, which led to them not being able to close out the game. Like that's that's a given. So it's not just jumping on referees, but it's everybody involved in it be able to go right. You know, what can what can we do better here? And and I I just think to make that call, as I said, that it's not an offside with three viewings of it with no zoom uh and not be able to explain like why uh, I, I don't even, i think that's an error in itself to be honest uh and if you're Andy friend like you just think uh, uh, and people say oh you know maybe Andy friend's is, perception is he's being hard done by um but if you're Andy friend and you, and you see that not being really examined like what do you think do you know what, I mean? what like do you like do you think it's fair like and and what happened in sports ground you know uh, i don't know i don't know and also i, I i'll be honest Munster and Leinster fans they don't understand uh, how much rub of the green they get from from referees you know uh, and i've certainly i certainly shared clips i won't say Munster Lancer, i've shared clips with with teams at the top of the table and 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 the coaches were astounded by how it is on the other side as a as a as a bottom feeder or such you know what i mean and uh, and that's that's the that's the issue that we're, that that the URC have to do and, and there's a narrative as well oh look at it's all down to the fact we don't have a referee manager that's bullshit. Uh, when Greg was there, Greg was brilliant, but his ability to influence each of the referee managers in the host unions, I would say, was was difficult or or, or was limited. So the URC, uh, you know, everyone's looking at it at the moment because obviously the South Africans have come in and they've cried well They've they've basically called it out, and uh, um, so it's been the news. We've seen some really high profile errors. Okay, and I'm not saying the Munster error. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in general. There's been some really high-profile marginal decisions in other games that has got in the news. It's also on terrestrial TV, so more people are looking at it. Um, and the Welsh and the Scots are laughing. I'm getting messages saying, "Now you know what it's like. What we've had to put up with with Irish referees, because (laughs) unfortunately for the last uh, 18 months, we've had to have our own referees referee us. Um, whereas before they're over in Wales or Scotland." And um you know we've had the Welsh and the Scots come in here so I think there's there's a culmination of facts that are have led to this now where it's become a crisis point and it's not just the URC the URC is the worst league in the world for for refereeing. it's it's behind top 14 and, and Premiership for sure um but we saw with Razzie during the summer you know it's, it's at international level as well there's a there's a crisis and Ireland unfortunately you know um I'm doing a piece for the Sun Independence you know we had four four referees in the World Cup in 2003. We're a tier one country, um, and we had no referee at the World Cup in 2019. You know, Andrew Brace was sent as a touch judge for his development. So we have fallen off the cliff um, in terms of our... And that's not... That's, like, people say, oh, that's me, and I'm, I'm making a judgment. Well, I don't pick the referees for the World Cup. You know what I mean? Uh, that's not my roles. But I'd imagine the people who do refer, pick the referees for the World Cup watch performances. Uh, I'd like to hope so. And... Someone else who's not who's a referee or referee administrator decided the two thousand nineteen World Cup that our referees have fallen behind. That's just it's like it's not it's not fact. It's a fact that that happened, but people can say you know the Irish referees might say that it was bad selection. I don't know, but um I think um I think it is worrying signs, and uh, we've talked about it before, but you know it's uh it's it's in it's in the news again, and we're talking about we're talking about refereeing rather than you know Jack Carty's performance or. Or Gavin Coombs, etc. So
2: just to clarify, you're saying Byrne was onside, is it? No, I'm saying he's off <laughs>
0: <Offside>. I'm messing. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I look at even if even if World Rugby come out and say he's onside, site, um, I still don't agree with it. Yeah, I know. I, I, I... Yeah, because because that's not look at if that's how it's going to be refereed in the future, I will agree with it uh, because that's how it is. But as I said, I've never ever ever seen or heard of it being refereed like that. So the to the, the example would be for box kicks now, you know, you could effectively have Ty Byrne chasing a box kick from Craig Casey. He just makes sure his back foot is level with Craig Casey and he could be halfway up the rook as long as his his right foot is his front foot is up in the air. That's that's how ludicrous it is, you know, and um, it's going to be an absolute shit fight to referee offsides if that's the case. Everything's going to be going to TMO. Uh, whereas I would like to say the, the touch judge who should have seen it anyway, um, the referee can see a body in front and just go, look, it's offside. Yeah, no, totally.
2: I think if it had been given as offside, nobody would have batted an eyelid. We would not be talking about it. No. That means really, he was spiritually offside, even if on some technical physical level, he wasn't. Um, but let's actually talk about the performance of Jack Carty, Connacht, and obviously Monster digging out a very important victory, um, like, we'll start with Munster there, Murray, in the sense that they won the game in the end and they actually did well to win it, even though Connacht absolutely should have closed the game out after Carty's try. Uh, does it still impress you that Munster can do this? Are you expecting a little bit more from them as they do it? Because, and I don't want to go over all ground, but um, even allowing for the fact that the conditions were difficult, the ball was greasy, we do know that if Munster play a forward-oriented game, forward dominated game one out runners, that kind of thing and just try to ostensibly bash the way over the line when things get tough it's not going to be enough against teams that are better than Connacht we know that it almost wasn't enough against Connacht at the weekend so it's one of those again where you're like absolutely well done you won the game but uh, is this going to go the same way that it has gone for the last 10 years plus
1: impossible to say right now um Obviously it's a long way, a long way off till, till we get to those games and I'm conscious of us not having the same chat about Munster every single week around this. Absolutely, conditions were tough. It was hard to, to move the ball, honestly. The the rain just stopped right before kickoff. Birch was there. It was absolutely pissing down beforehand and it looked like it would be even worse, um, tougher. Um, and there's literally loads of good elements in that. The, the bravery, I suppose, even to take that tap um, with seven minutes to go rather than popping over the points, they trusted themselves to to have that close-in um, combative game to, to get over the line and Barron took the try well and the bench made a really good impact in terms of Witcherly, obviously with that restart and Jack O'Donoghue yet again featuring prominently. Um, yeah, and there was there was loads of little bits to, to light there. Once they got the line-out issues sorted, which were really um, kind of eye-opening in the first half, it's rare enough that you see that scale of of... Um, problems in the line out from Munster but once they got the mall motoring that helped a a fair degree as well and yeah it was a very familiar kind of looking Munster win in tough conditions and in a really tough game against a Connacht team who played really well and probably played well enough to to win as you say they'll have massive regrets about how they managed the end game after Carty's try and and absolutely the performance was of the calibre of a winning team it's disappointing I suppose that Simon Zebo touched the ball once in, in attack I think he got two kick receipts but he had one touch on the ball early on where he beats the defender and then pirouettes and powers into contact and you think wow it'd be so exciting to see more of this happening um largely the the ability to go to width was in the kicking game with, with Carberry kind of targeting that space out in the 15 meter channels on a number of occasions that aside it was it was hard to to move the ball at times they didn't have the momentum to allow their back line to, to come into the game. They didn't have that line-out platform either to potentially play off and, and bring some of those exciting backs into the, into the mix. Uh, and they were kind of living off scraps. And that's probably something that Joey Carberry is dealing with, the reality of it now. You know, He probably would have loved to have played in that Scarlets game where there was lovely, clean possession and, and go for momentum. And he would have been able to show the array of his skills. So there's definitely frustration that they haven't been able to show development even early on in the game you saw little bits of interplay from the forwards some nice footwork from Coombs before contact and those things are really important as well as flashy backline moves but as is the reality of the game when they come under pressure they're going back to what they know is their strength and yes there's a definitely an impressive element to that but I agree with your lingering doubt and and we've flagged it I think every single week of this new season of the pod. That is going to be the lingering doubt all the way through until until May, June kind of time when the pressure is on in a massive knockout game.
2: Yeah, and as Murray says there, Bernard, there were times when I'm sure Munster would have liked to actually um, go to with but particularly in the first half, Connacht were actually winning the breakdown uh, battle and Munster probably actually just didn't get an opportunity to do it. Carberry didn't get an opportunity to do it. He certainly did not get the armchair ride that Ben Healy had gotten a week prior, so that, falls on Connacht then as in it's a testament to how well they played particularly in that first half it's two games now at Thalman Park in the space of a few months where Connacht have either won or should have won and I find that um, a a bit of an indictment from Munster's point of view brilliant from Connacht's point of view because like if you were to list both squads and combine a 15 or combine a 23 like that squad would, or that match day 23 would be dominated by monster players and yet Connacht have twice gone to monsters' backyard and proven a match for them pretty much
0: yeah it's a no testament a fair bit of Connacht a good reaction from obviously what had been a very poor Dragons performance um, and they got amongst them uh, and they they made the game an absolute nightmare for Craig Casey and and Joey Carby you know you, you hit the nail on the head there about the breakdown I mean Effectively, they have absolutely zero security on their own ball. So, you know, for Carby, he wasn't getting any bit of any flow. And then the weather conditions. And I think Munster have got work to do in terms of their alignment as well. Like um, their depth is is non-existent. And it's easy for teams to get off the line and actually shut them down. Um, so when Joey looks up, he doesn't really have a, a passing option. So, um, so I can understand for their general phase attack struggled it was mainly down to them not winning collisions um i been on the front foot from from their forward carries and even guys like coombs were quiet from that point of view in fairness connor um Connor defended and their tackle tech and their aggression was very good and then the fact that you know the ball has been turned over at every third or fourth breakdown for both teams i mean clute destroyed the connor breakdown as well so it wasn't it wasn't exclusively that but it meant there was no real shape to the game um and in fairness i think munster did roll the sleeves and, and they went back to their forwards and, and they won the game which they had to do but um i think disappointingly for me as i said it earlier was they don't like you know uh, it's only one example but if, it's an example that's, that maybe people remember rather than giving examples they don't is is the is the carberry you know kick off right hand scrum i mean to kick across yourself there you know with marmion coming onto your right foot and carty getting in front of you as well is is absolute madness you know um like how they didn't throw, play some kind of a play to get the ball to Zeebo to bring up the um uh, John Porsche uh, uh, and actually then obviously open up the whole backfield. I mean, that's that's something that you would expect them to have in their playbook. You know, so, you know, I don't know why. And I don't think it's all on Joey. I mean, you know, Keith Earls is there. Roy Scanlon is there. Uh, Haley's an experienced player. Zeebo's an experienced player. I mean, but that should be a that's that's standard practice that every team has an option to run kick there, right? So that's that's something I, I that worries me a little bit. And there was other examples of of not being smart. And then if you look back at their their launch plays, right, which have nothing to do with the breakdown. I mean, uh, their timing, their lines of running were were very poor. And like, there's even one that Joey has to knock it up himself because I think Scanlon overruns him. So like, there's That's stuff they have to fix, you know, um, and that's not down to to kind of being aggressive or, or or the breakdown that's stuff that's in their in their own control and it's only four weeks in um but you would like to see certainly like to see some signs of of progression um in those areas and i look at it it looks like the coaches are all re-signing for another two years so there's longevity there um and you know there's going to be uh, consistency and cohesion etc but you just like to see a little bit more in the areas that they can't control. That you know, you know, once they're going to have a decent scrum, you know they're going to have a good lineout. Um, you know, you're going to have to exit, uh, off, off both. Uh, you'd like to see a little bit more logic or smarts there, um, uh, to take the pressure off someone like, like Joey, and use other people's skills. Like, you know, I'm using Zebon as example, but there's, there's lots of good players. Like when they have Farland and the land, they come back in, um, you know, are they really sure how they want to use them? Uh, to the best of their ability.
2: Stick with yourself for a second, Birch, then from Connock's point of view, even in defeat, do you think... I'm sorry, putting aside the fact that he was incredibly pissed off naturally about the two-day try, do you think Andy Friend leaves Thoman Park and when things cool down a little bit, he is fairly happy in the sense that, okay, a week beforehand, they flatter to deceive against the Dragons. They lost a game that you would have down as a, a banker win. But on the flip side of that, two games out of three, they've played fairly formidable opposition Munster one of the seven, eight best teams in Europe let's say Bulls who we think will come into their own and they've put it up to them they've beaten the Bulls they should have beaten Munster and like can you glean from that or can you take from that um, something resembling momentum like you know there, there were two performances at least within the space of three weeks yeah. that you can build upon there
0: Absolutely he, look, he he's getting back on that bus incredibly proud of his of his players and um, and you know we'll be delighted that he showed, uh, um, you know that bounce back ability, uh, uh, of coming back from a poor Dragons performance and and going to Toman Park and playing. But again, he'll be in some ways that'll be annoying him. That'll be frustrating because um they blew the game they should have won, uh, or could, uh, and then you know once there would have been a freebie and he's left without the points. And you know with the, you know we've spoken about it before with the URC European Cup qualifications being harder this year. It's gonna be hard to get those points back that they lost against the Dragons. Like there's, that's the that's the that's the killer. But look at at least he's has back. Known um he has a team who have fight who have skill. Uh he's just got to try and find the key to unlocking that inconsistency that's incredibly frustrating because you know they beat Munster Ulster and Leinster away last year, but they backed them up or or before that before those games were some of their worst performances um in years. So that's the that's the million-dollar um, problem that he, he's going to have to try and find a solution to.
1: And that's why this weekend against Ulster in the Viva is absolutely pivotal for them already. It's early days in the season, I know, but they lose that game and and this five-week block has been a, a really poor return for them. Um, I know they're probably going to be disappointed with the the uh, attendance figures there at the Viva. This weekend, they're hoping for a bigger crowd, but whoever is there is going to have to give them a, a, a hell of a lot of support as Birch mentions, that Dragons game at home, that should be a, an absolute banker. Even away to Cardiff, like they came away with nothing from that, and that was a miss. Even losing bonus points are important when, when this is all going to come to a, a head at the end of the season. You look at the table, they're already down in 11th, and obviously there's frustrations around the circumstance of last weekend, but it's really important that they finish this block with with a bang against, against Ulster.
2: Just very briefly before we move on to Ulster, uh, and I know you mentioned it earlier, Murray, that Jack Carty can consider himself unlucky to be omitted from this Ireland squad. Like He's manned a match uh, in Thomond Park. It completely outplays Joey Carberry. I completely take Bernard's point that Andy Farrell might sense there's a higher ceiling to Carberry. Uh, he still might be the incumbent or, or the heir to the throne and it's worth rolling the dice and finding out, I guess. Whereas maybe with Carty's age and the fact that he's been playing fairly consistently now for the last few years, we sort of know what he is or, or what he can do. That being said, like, What he can do is really good, you know. And at the moment, it looks like more than what Carberry is able to do for probably a variety of reasons. But do you think, like, when you consider how often we've seen Carty play this well, and it's quite regular. It might not be consistent, but it is regular. And the fact that, say, Carberry in a monster jersey, allowing for the fact, obviously, that he missed uh, a huge portion of his time there through injury, we still point back to, like, a game against Gloucester Two and a half, three years ago, probably at this stage, where oh, remember what he did that day? He can be that good. Whereas Cartier's has probably produced similar performances to that, like re- almost routinely in the last couple of years. Like you've said, he's unlucky, but like is he extremely unlucky? I, I just it's it must be tough for him to play that well, that regularly, and just feel as though you know I I I'm not going to get a shot here uh, internationally.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting one. Like, is it is he playing at that level that regularly? I, I think the issue has been the inconsistency with him and he's put his hand up like in the Dragons game which f- very few people in comparison I would say actually watched he wasn't a standout performer and I'd say he was disappointed with a lot of elements of his game and like watching him across courses of season without being too harsh that is the, the story of, of his career really and he again he's flagged that himself he, he knows that if he can be closer towards that monster performance more often then he will obviously be back in that mix but it is more up and down. There's the, you know, there's the drop off after the highs and is reflective of Connacht as a collective and obviously, as we've just kind of been alluding to, the, the out halves and, and nines are often a reflection of what, how their team is doing. Like, they're the ones most prominently in the in everyone's eyes and, and most attention is on them. So, I don't know, like, I, I think he's an absolutely wonderful player. I love the skill set he has. I think his kicking game adds something different and I think it is valuable having that in your squad and, and as I've said, I, you know, I would have had him in that mix very often but I think Carberry has loads of lovely skills as well and and has played when he's been fit and obviously coming back from the injury there's there's a whole lot of issues there and even his confidence I think he looks a little bit um indecisive at times uh, and that that'll come but I think our most relevant uh, our most recent sorry bank of our extended run of form he was playing at a consistently good level, where it didn't really dip away uh, very often. And, and that applies to international rugby as well. Like he has more experience than Carty. Maybe people would argue Cardi should have more international experience and that he has done well given opportunities. But Carby has done Um, done well in international rugby as well so that counts a lot we know in Test Rugby it's not just about the most recent match or or the URC or Pro 14 form they often bank uh, what they've done in international camps and in the green jersey before as well so yeah I definitely feel uh, that it's tough for for Jack Hardy but I can kind of understand why he's gone with the 10s he has
2: Fair Uh, Bernard looking at Ulster's victory last weekend how do you anticipate that this one is going to go at the Aviva? Like they, they continue to roll on. They continue to get the job done. I, I know a, a couple of listeners from Ulster have been in touch, saying like we're not speaking about Ulster enough. I think there will come a time when we're, when we're speaking about them an awful lot. At the moment, it feels as though like they're doing incredibly well, but this isn't going to be their team for sort of bigger games. Realistically, like it's still sort of injury plagued. They were unchanged at the weekend, um, but it's an absolute credit to them that they're still going. And they'll be favourites going into this game, I presume. Are they favourites to your mind?
0: Yeah, they are favorites because they've just got into a habit of of wearing teams down, um and and getting getting the attacking bonus. I think Connacht are still a little bit um trying to find that run of confidence and and, and momentum that obviously that Ulster have. And and I think it's brilliant for Ulster to like to have the injuries they've had, to be, you know, missing um the, the players and, and obviously dwayne vermilion to come back uh, to come over uh to rack up 20 points is uh is pretty impressive and um yeah I Ulster have to be favorites for it but I, I, I think maybe connor will catch him i mean that you know they, they probably ulster have had three home games you know their way game was against zebra um you know, I think Call Conor, Connor have played harder. Well, uh, certainly you know, Munster way is, is a harder fixture than Zebra away. So um I think Connor need to win. They need to win and maybe he'll just expose some of the little cracks that that we've seen in Ulster's uh in Ulster's game. But it'll be very tight. Did yeah. you
2: see much progression, Murray, in Ulster's performance against the Lions versus their performance against Benetton, in the sense that Dan McFarlane stuck with the same starting team at least and You'd sort of hope for a little bit of added cohesion then when you're playing week to week with the same combinations and so on.
1: It kind of feels like the performance has been the same each week. Like, really good outcome, lots of little positive parts, but definitely an underlying kind of layer of frustration. And, and I sensed it from them after the game. And, and McFarland was pretty honest with it. You know, lots of good stuff done, but the attacking breakdown was a frustration. They gave away a couple of key turnovers. They were a little bit sloppy inside the opposition 22 when they. Done all the hard work to create chances, you know, not giving a pass, maybe making a poor decision to snipe or to carry close to the ruck when the space was out a little wider, and some straight up drop balls. There was one from Dave McCann down the left. Sam Carter got stripped a couple of times as well. So they definitely haven't got their nine out of ten performance yet. I, I don't think, and and they'll feel that that's been coming a little bit. Obviously, major frustration and disappointment for Will Addison again because he looked really sharp at times uh, in that game when he got on the ball you can see the creative skills he has and the different dimension he brings to it but he's got another spell on the sidelines now after after the, the really unfortunate leg break. So yeah with Ulster like you don't want to be again you look at the outcome and the, the perfect points record and, and you think you have to be happy with that but I know that internally they don't really feel that way just yet and and they feel there's a lot more to come so from their point of view what better occasion? than down in the Aviva this weekend.
2: There's probably a sense with the Snyman injury a couple of weeks ago, Bernard, that Van Gran and Munster will have to change their plans slightly um, for this season, having lost a player of his calibre, and how he would have factored into what they want to do. I kind of get a similar impression with Addison, because he can do so much. Like He um, is a sort of a jack-of-all-trades in, uh, in any backline, really, and just adds... Um, a string to Ulster's bow now that will be missing I know they have loads and loads of talented players in the back three some really good young players coming through as well but can you put into context how big a loss it is probably from well we know it's a loss for Ulster but even just the way Dan McFarlane will be thinking about the season moving forward
0: it'll be it'll be really big because of the way Ulster have tweaked their attack so it's a different attacking philosophy under Dan Soper than it was under Dwayne Peel so Dwayne Peel um it seems from looking at teams he coaches all about power and, and being direct, whereas Soper's looking to create mismatches on the edges and uh a big part of that is obviously playing off off midfield rooks and having two playmakers and Addison is one of the few fifteens who genuinely is comfortable stepping up there. Um so you can have Madigan or Billy Burns uh on the on on, on the right hand side hypothetically and, and you can have Addison on the left and, and that's that changes the picture dramatically for defenses having someone who's comfortable being that first receiver uh, and it often makes teams go a little bit softer which you know gives you opportunities on the edges and Ulster have created a lot of opportunities on the edges and um, you know they've, they've done well out of it with, with Macaroy and and um, and uh, Gilroy but I think when you put Stockdale and Bartcloon in there if they can find the same space it'll just be it should be a different story, and um, you know, I watched uh, Stade Francais uh, score a great try with McAlew at the weekend, who plays, and they play a, a one one shape, and he's, he's the winger, and uh, again, it was a similar type of pitcher that Ulster had been getting, but he just burnt his, his opposite man and, and, and scored a phenomenal try, and I just think, I think, you know, while Ulster have loads of depth at wing, you know, realistically, Stockdale and ballot are, are a little bit more dangerous, and uh, I think that's what that that was a big driver in, in terms of Why they wanted to get into that philosophy Or that shape And Addison was a, a, a part of it for sure But I, I don't need to go away from it now um, I think they'll stay with it But it, it mightn't be as effective with him gone yeah,
2: Got it for him on a personal level as well We wish him well on the recovery And looking forward to seeing him back Hopefully he has better luck next time he returns uh, Murray, Ulster and Connacht at the Aviva Or rather Connacht than Ulster Which way are you leaning with that one?
1: Oh, Connacht, narrowly
2: And you're the same, Brad, yeah? Yeah. Interesting. Leinster put 50 on the Scarlets. We were asking, could uh, Hugh Hogan uh, do a bit of a job on Leinster? And he would have been expecting, as would the entire Scarlets organization, really a reaction from the very poor performance a week beforehand against Munster. Sickening yourself, Murray, they actually got that reaction to begin with, is the thing. They actually played pretty well in the first half and uh, took the lead. But Leinster's quality... And actually their forwards especially um, really paid dividends. What was it? Seven tries they scored. Six forward tries and one penalty try, which sort of tells its own story, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, that was a scrum penalty try. So <laughs> it's definitely the, the forwards bagging the credit there. We discussed it in the members pod on Monday. Like The scoreline in a weird way was almost not reflective. I thought Scarlet did loads of good stuff and, and had nice moments. But it just shows the extra gears that Leinster can go through when they... Are required. I thought obviously one of the tries. Speaking of of the refereeing, I thought one of the tries included a knock on during the build up that was missed, which was obviously frustrating for for Scarlets at a kind of key point in the game. But Leinster were thoroughly deserving of their of their victory because they, as I say, went through those gears. The pack was just immense. I thought Ross Maloney was one of the standout guys, and he's one who doesn't make headlines, but he's a really important cog in it. He brought grit and he brought skill level, and he kind of typified everything that that pack has. And, and you think of the guys who weren't even playing that Leinster can use up front and it, and it's scary. I thought the first outing for the Porter-Kelleher-Furlong front row was really promising, really exciting to see the three of them on the pitch. Porter making jackal turnovers. Furlong still obviously getting up to the pace of it. Kelleher so explosive. And then they rolled on Healy and Sheehan and Al-Ala and you think this is just an unbelievable weapon for them this season because those three guys made a big impact as well. Um, after the aforementioned penalty try around the scrum, so like there's really nice depth in that front row, a really nice combination. If they can keep those guys fit, that if you're looking further down the line, is potentially the difference when you meet a LaRochelle or someone who has size like Will Skelton in their squad, because that was the kind of one of the key issues they identified last season. So uh, yeah, overall a really pleasing day for them you have to give the back some credit, some of the build-up attack I thought in the middle of third of the pitch to get the forwards into those positions was really inventive and sharp. There's a, a bounce to their attack at the moment. There's a... Zest maybe to it in terms of you can see Lancaster and Sexton have this revitalised approach to it and they're studying the way the game is going there's loads of little fresh ideas everything's not exactly working out but even some of the shapes they're playing and how they're varying things up in attack they're very tough to defend against because you just don't know exactly where where it's coming from so having had a couple of stuttering performances as we flagged and, and a couple of underperformances including that Dragons one this was much more what they would have wanted to show. And I think they're definitely tracking the right direction with that development of their squad, particularly in the front row as well, looking really promising.
2: Yeah, nice challenge for them now. Tomorrow night, uh, we record on Thursday, Birch. Friday night, they're in Glasgow. I'm sure Leo Cullen and Stuart Lancaster would have come away from that game feeling as though it was maybe not like a complete performance. It's, it's rare that a coach will ever kind of admit that a team has played 100% well, but as Murray outlines there, um, just a more pleasing, more rounded performance than we've seen in recent weeks. But now you're probably going there uh, to Glasgow, that is, sorry, uh, you would have I presume like to have played Johnny Sexton I think uh, he, he's ruled out for the time being um, it doesn't look to be a particularly serious injury just a little bit of a reshuffle needed again uh, obviously James Ryan as well as following return to play protocols it might be a bit soon for him this week um, so how do you uh, assess that trip to the Warriors uh, based on what we saw from Leinster last weekend is the momentum there now where you can kind of expect Leinster to just win every game again basically in this competition
0: yeah look at that it was a very impressive performance I think uh, for the Leicester fans who haven't seen Glasgow um, Glasgow are, are a good side. but what's really changed about them is how 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 would you say it how there's lots of off the ball there's lots of like bust ups and, and all ins they're really playing on the edge uh, some of the fans will remember the kind of the bit of history there was between Munster and Glasgow about three or four years ago where there was, it was really really on a fine line between you know being overstepping the mark that seems to what danny wilson and, and it's not that he's not giving them technical and tactical um instruction but they're really playing on the edge and that's probably something that leinster would have to deal with away from home you know it's a tight pitch um it's 4g and you know that kind of constant in your face type of of attitude that Glasgow seem to be bringing which is great I mean it, like it's everyone has their their own way of of trying to to create success but it's something that probably certainly wasn't the case with against scarletts I mean uh even though scarletts played better Leinster were, were were very much on on the front foot and uh you know probably the last against the dragons they they kind of got bogged down a little bit though you know with, with speed of ball and it's uh, probably the next test for them I think it'll be a harder match than the obviously last week against scarletts just about scarletts I think you know, I feel sorry for Dwayne Peel. I mean, uh, if you follow his his progress, he went to Cardiff Blues, you know, with the understanding he was going to have a director of rugby, John Mulvihill, um, above him. And that's what he wanted. He he wants to be a head coach on the pitch. Um, Obviously, John Mulvihill moved on. Die Young... Wants to be on the pitch. Who replaced John Mulvihill? So that left Dwayne with a you know decision to make. He went to Scarlets to work under Glenn Delaney. Glen Delaney got moved on, and you know they try to bring in a director Ruby. They don't have one, so Dwayne is now trying to to build a team with all the with all the nonsense that you have to do off the field as well. So I feel sorry for him. And they've got Bennett on this weekend. They got to play Benetton without the Welsh internationals because Wales play New Zealand next week outside the window, and then they go when they come out of it. They go to Sharks. And bulls, so you know it's it's not easy. Um, when you're struggling for a win or performance, and 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 the calendar it kind of works against you a little bit. But uh, yeah, look at that. I'm fascinated to see how Leinster deal with that kind of um antagonism that they're probably going to face against Glasgow.
2: Do you anticipate that they'll deal with it well enough to get a win, Murray?
1: Yeah, I predict Leinster win there with at least fifteen all-in brawls because last time it was real nasty, wasn't it? I know some of the stuff right went over the over the top last time, but uh, that is the way you see Munster in Glasgow with that vicious rivalry. But I think Leinster have kind of stepped in and, and replaced Munster there.
2: It's the type of thing that a commentator will tell you, "Oh, we don't like to see that," but like we, I, I do. I love, <laughs> I love to see it. <laughs> Not gonna lie. Uh, Birch Leinster win for you, or could Glasgow get a little bit of an upset there?
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah. I know Leinster L- 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 Lens- to have too many. Um, too many weapons, I think, to to lose.
2: And monster away to Ospreys this weekend. How do you see that one going, boys? Birch.
0: Um, I think monster monster win. Um, I'm, I high I, I hopes for Ospreys. Um, I know they got a good win. Um, last weekend, but the yeah, I think monster
1: uh, monster win. Now. I'm in the same boat there as well, Gav.
2: Lovely. Okay. Uh, thank you, gents, as always thank you to everybody at home as well to join the 42 members in the members whatsapp group to support our independent sports journalism and to get a discount for our new book behind the lines volume 5 go to members.the42.e the book is available on the 42's online shop .shop. www.the42.shop it'll also be available physically in uh, bookstores as well very soon keep your eyes peeled for that murray will be back on monday with owen looking back in the weekend's action on rugby weekly extra that's for members three of us will be back then in this regular slot next thursday so until then mind yourselves take it easy and uh, enjoy all the rugby over the weekend